What'd you have, Brother Kosa? Actually, two points. One of them, like the, the young man in Corinthians was turned over to Satan. That's not quite the same as turned over to a reprobate mind. I've always felt that the everlasting change of darkness is bound to ignorance. They're bound to ignorance. There's no light that they're going to receive from God that would help them change their minds. So bound, you know, in change, or change of darkness being bound in ignorance, basically. To me, that's like being turned over to a reprobate mind. Not quite delivered to Satan, you know, for their correction. Like you said, you know, just awaiting judgment. Once you've been turned over to a reprobate mind, human or otherwise, you can't escape that. God's going to have to get you out of that. Once you're reprobate, that means you don't have anything in you anymore that God can even use. You're valueless. There's nothing in you that's going to wake up and come to God. That's true of that situation. It'd be true of a human in that state. It would be entirely up to God then if he ever wanted to rescue a person in that state. And I definitely don't believe he rescues reprobate angels. So the second thought is, where you said they went through a testing, the angels went through a testing. So I had some thoughts on 1 Corinthians 10, 13, mm-hmm. where it says that there's no temptation taking you, uh, but which is common to man. Right. There may have been a temptation that was more than what's common to man. Well, the idea where he says you will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able. So there is something maybe even beyond what man is able that they faced and therefore fell. I think so. And I think that eventually we've got to grow to the point, which I think they were already at that point. Here's what it comes down to. I think whatever testing the angels may have endured, theoretically speaking, again, it's a theory, but we see the results of something. You have good and you have evil angels. Something happened, right, to create that. So you have to assume. And if you're going to conclude that it's not going to be a problem that's going to continue all through eternity, maybe more angels will have problems. You have to assume it was a test that some passed and some didn't. See how simple that is? It's a theory, but it's a theory based on some pretty good evidence that we can look at and say this would pretty much have to be the case. Now, I don't believe that they have, as you said, any possibility of redemption from that state. I think Adam and Eve just did not have the kind of knowledge and awareness of God and even spiritual maturity that the angels had. I don't think the angels were in a state of a lower level of spiritual maturity like Adam and Eve were. Adam and Eve weren't fully developed when they were born. I mean, they were fully matured human beings. There were still a lot of things they didn't know. They didn't know the knowledge of good and evil. There's a lot of things they did not know enough about yet that they would have had to grow in their knowledge. They would have had to mature more than they were. I think the angels already had the knowledge and the maturity. So they were at a level where they should have not fallen. And given their closeness to God, I think that is part of the reasons why it would be a permanent judgment. Whereas the race of man has hope. The celestial race, anyone that's been corrupted, there's no hope. I have a question on angels and manifestations. Mm-hmm. That's one of the very few places in the Bible that, in fact, really the only real clear place that it seems to imply that there may be what we call guardian angels, an angel that is watching over God's people. And in this case, at least, he tells you children. But I don't think it's just children in general, though angels can watch over all children. But I think it's children that are children of the righteous. If we didn't have that verse, it'd be very hard to say what I'm about to say. Because you'd have to really read between the lines of some other statements. 
This verse does seem to imply there are angels that have a responsibility for people that God feels a protective. That's mysterious to us because you think, well, God's aware of everything. Why would you need to have anybody there to protect you? God could allow or not allow anything to happen. It's just the way God works. You have to understand there's ways God works. And you can't read our concepts into them. Some of them don't even seem to make sense. If you are an omnipresent God, why would you need any angel to go do things for you? You just think about it and it's done. But it's just the way he works. It appears to be the way he wants it done. I believe it's very likely that there are angels that watch over us in that kind of way. And it may very well be that that angel that was standing over my bedside that night was that angel that stands before God on my behalf. I wouldn't doubt that for a minute. Now I realize some people think that's a little bit too supernatural, whatever word they want to come up with, but that is what the Bible seems to convey unless we get so symbolic with things in the Bible. And I've said this before where we got to be careful. If we're going to start symbolically overriding every supernatural angelic thing we see in the Bible because we don't want it to be real, eventually we're not going to have any angels at all left in the Bible. You might as well be a Sadducee. Because just like I said about Satan and Gabriel, There is a lot more evidence for Satan being a supernatural angel than there is for Gabriel. And I don't really know anyone that argues that Gabriel's not really an angel. Just think about that. In fact, don't do it. This would be a little bit bellicose, you know, picking fights. Pugnacious is the word I wanted. Like you're looking for a fight. But if you could do it in the right spirit, it might be a good question to ask him. Do you believe Gabriel is a celestial angel and why? Don't even talk to them about Satan. Just ask them if they believe Gabriel's a celestial angel and why. Well, yeah, he's a celestial angel. Why? Why are you so certain of that? There's only two things they could be certain about. He's called an angel, and he seems to have supernatural insight or ability. And Satan's called an angel, and he has got a lot more examples in the Bible of supernatural insight and ability than Gabriel and his four mentions. So why wouldn't you believe Satan is an angel, since you're so convinced Gabriel is with so much less evidence? Sorry, but that's a little bit of that pugnacious spirit I still have in me, but I advise you, you don't go picking a fight over it. Joe, did you have something? Yeah, um, looking in Revelations 12, you can go down through a lot of this, but number seven is what got me. It said there was war in heaven. Michael and his angel fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels. So if you're going to be over an army of angels, you're probably an angel. That is an example of a passage that there are a lot of interpretations. Did that happen in the past? Did that happen in the first century? Was Michael there a military title for Jesus, and it was Jesus and his angels fighting with the devil and his angels? I'm not taking one of these sides. I'm just showing you examples. Was it Jesus and his ministers? Because someone would say, well, those weren't real angels. Those were ministers. It was Jesus and his ministers fighting against the devil and his ministers. Okay. Even if you were to go that far with it, Jesus is a celestial being. Whoever his angels are, if they're celestial beings, or if they're human beings called by that title, he's a celestial being. Why would you think whoever he's in conflict with, no matter who the different angels under them are, why would you think he would be something different? It's two celestial beings. And that's really where the conflict is at, by the way, and it's because God allows it. That's what I think people have a hard time wrapping their head around, and what gets people confused in the doctrine of the devil that have our view, is they think the battle is between God and Satan. There's a lot of criticism from people that don't believe the way we do, because they say, do you really think Satan is in some kind of head-to-head battle with God? He's not in any head-to-head battle with God. Where do you see that in the Bible? You do not see it in the book of Job, do you? He's not even challenging God. 
What's happening is God has allowed Satan to act in the kind of capacity he's acting at a certain level. And that level, at certain times in history, has been face-to-face with Christ. It's been face-to-face with the church. That's where Michael the archangel was wrestling with Satan over the body of Moses. There has been times there has been conflict between those powers, but they're at a different level than the Almighty God. The Almighty God is above any conflict. The simplest reason for that is, if he wanted to end the conflict, if somebody was doing something to him, he doesn't need to fight. A thought would end the conflict. So he obviously is allowing it for a purpose. And I think the conflict is part of his ongoing purpose. It's part of what allows the stresses and pressures and other things to do what is necessary. Jesus had to be tempted in the wilderness. Let's go to that for a simple example. Jesus had to be tempted in the wilderness. That was part of his process. Do you know the proof? Why do I say it was God's purpose for Jesus to go into the wilderness and be tested? The Spirit drove him, which is an old English way of saying drove him. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The Spirit came upon him and led him out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Meaning it was God's purpose all along. It wasn't like the devil showed up and, oh, he's going to throw a monkey wrench in this. He's trying to tempt my son. Do you think that's what God was thinking? Like he was upset or nervous or afraid? He allowed the devil to tempt his son, just like he allowed the devil to tempt Adam and Eve. Because Jesus had to be tempted. And he had to be tempted and proven true. And so will we. Whether it's the devil or whether it's the messengers of Satan. Satan doesn't do everything himself. He's not omnipresent. He's not in all places at all times. He's a singular being in one place at a time. So whether it's Satan or the messengers of Satan, literally or allegorically, whether it's the world or whether it's your own flesh, you are going to be tempted and tried. And God's going to take you through whatever trials and temptations are required until nothing can come against you. That's what it means to overcome, to get the victory. Nothing more is out there that you aren't capable of standing against. Brother Bear, can it take us right there closer to the statement that we started with somewhat towards the beginning and it said we should feel condemnation until we have been cleared of all condemnation? <coughs> Don't we have to be tested so we know that we're always choosing God over the world? And that's where that, and as long as we're feeling, I don't like to feel kind, I like to be successful, but when I'm not successful, I have to look for that condemnation, otherwise I can steer my conscience that's right. from the godness in my life. That's so right. we don't want to be without that condemnation until we're clear, we've proven, we've passed everything that can cause the condemnation between us and God. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's an excellent point, Sister Sharon. It's close to what Paul was saying in Second Corinthians when he was talking about the fact that they had dealt with that condition with that man who had taken his father's wife. And it's what it looks like he's talking about. And he had apparently repented and had been restored to the church. They had dealt with it in the way they needed to deal with it. And apparently he had repented. But one of the things he says, and he's talking about repenting, he says, what vengeance is the word that he used. You're saying, what would vengeance have to do with repenting? You're taking vengeance against the thing you did wrong, as strange as that sounds. You did something wrong and it so hurt you that you knew you're under condemnation. 
I am going to defeat the thing that is condemning me. I'm going to take vengeance against the thing that has caused me condemnation. Not a person, the feeling, the sin. And it sounds strange to talk about taking vengeance against it, but it's not going to condemn me again. I'm going to defeat it. And that's what it means to overcome. You have defeated that thing. Yeah, there's some good points. Sister Debbie? Um, Sister Sheila, I think after Brother Joe was on Revelation 12, 7, Mm -hmm. she's questioning, she's interested in, she said there was a war in heaven. Mm -hmm. God has a celestial being allowed at times for Satan to go in and head-to-head battle with. God allows Satan to remain in a state of conflict with God's people. Now, God can stop the conflict anytime he wants. I have seen him do it. I've seen times where somebody is dealing with tremendous pressure, and it it very likely is in the spiritual realm from what I'm going to call a messenger of Satan. What I mean by that is an evil spirit. And I'm going to tell you, there's times God comes in in a mighty way and just stops it. But what we need to remember that's even bigger than that there's never been a time that it was outside God's purview. Right. You know, pseudo-Christianity, nominal Christianity, whatever word we want to use for it, I've been getting away from just calling it Babylon because there's a lot more to that word. Maybe we can misrepresent some things. Not everything's Babylon that's outside of us. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes out in mainline Christianity, there gets this idea like the war is between God and the devil. And there's times that oh, if something doesn't happen, the devil's going to win. The only way the devil's going to win is if God lets him win. He was allowed. And this is interesting, by the way, because this is exactly what's being talked about when it says that Mark the archangel, when he's disputing with the devil over the body of Moses, dared not bring a railing accusation against him, but he said, the Lord rebuked thee. If that's referring to Jesus or one of the highest angels, that angelic being did not have the authority from God at that point to correct Satan. God always has had the authority, right? Which means God just didn't give Michael the authority at that point. Now, if Michael and Jesus are synonymous, he gave him the authority when he came to this earth. He rebuked Satan in the wilderness. He rebuked evil spirits all throughout his ministry. So sometimes God allows certain levels of conflict to occur because it's part of the testing process or it's intended to, for example, if that angel that went before them in the wilderness was just able to stop any problem that ever came against them, no matter how bad they were, they would not learn the lessons they needed to learn, which he talks about later in Deuteronomy when he says, remember all the ways I've brought you. And when he said that, by the way, it was not just talking about all the good things you went through these 40 years in the wilderness. I did it to try you. I did it to prove you, to know what was in your heart. Those weren't all good things. God does a lot of good things to you. He's not really seeing what's in your heart. You know how sweet and nice you'll be if all God does is pour blessings out on you? If everything you pray for, it just comes true, just right away. I never face any problems, you know. I'm on this path, and I know God put me on the path of salvation, of your personal process you're going through, whatever it might be. Why is it not always going right for me? Why are there serious roadblocks and speed bumps and bots dots and all kinds of other stuff that's distracting me along? Those are those little bumps, you know, on the side. Make the boop, boop, boop when you get over. Why are all those things going on all around me? Why am I dealing with these things? I'll tell you why. Because right at that point, that is part of the process that is testing you. Are you going to be proved faithful to God? You're not proved faithful to God because you stay faithful to him because he just keeps giving you everything you ask is that you stay faithful to him when he doesn't give you what you ask. He may eventually give you what you ask, 
but you remain faithful to him even when he's not giving you what you ask and sometimes what you need. You're thinking, I have to have this to survive, Lord. Why haven't you given it to me? Why haven't you fixed this problem? Why am I suffering? And what God is often doing in cases like that, remember, he is almighty. He can change it with a thought. What God's doing in almost every one of those cases, if not every case, he's trying to prove you to see whether you will serve him or not. That's what he was doing with Abraham. That's why he later said, now I know. Now, it's not that God doesn't know everything, but we are creatures that are allowed choice. And Abraham had to be taken through a process. I know God knew the end of where that process could be, but my personal opinion of God's knowledge of that was God knew every single thing that could happen. But that doesn't mean he knew what Abraham would choose ahead of time. Abraham had to make that choice, and now God could say to Abraham, now I know that you'll lead your family after you in my footsteps, so to speak, and all those other things that were behind those words. He needs to know that about us. He needs to know it doesn't matter what I take you through. It doesn't matter how stormy the sea. doesn't matter if you've got to walk through the fire. doesn't matter if you've got to go through the water. doesn't matter what kind of conditions you have to face. Sometimes thinking, God has left me, I'm suffering, and it's darkness. And right now when we look, let's come full circle and close this evening. But right now when we look even at the conditions in our nation, the political climate, the anger and the animosity and the direction that things are taking, which look like without an absolute miracle, are, it's clearer than I've ever seen it. I can see the persecution of the church coming. And I told you, saints, hope you remember. I don't need you to tell anyone this, nor do I need any validation of any prophetic gift. But I told you a number of times in some of these types of classes, when you start to see the conservative groups like the Catholic Church, once you see them begin to cave on cultural and moral issues, there's nothing left between us and this world. They have been a wall between us. Somebody has been holding up a conservative bulwark against this dying world. Yes, they are a polluted system, but there is a standard of morality they have still held against this world. Now, if you haven't seen it starting to come down the last few months, even the great bulwarks of conservative strength like Fox News that usually has stood against it and really called it out, you're watching in front of your own eyes if you're paying attention. They're starting to cave where fewer and fewer of them are actually a voice against that liberal element and more and more of them are compromising. I told you, I've told you for several years at different times this was going to happen. Those are the precursors of what's coming because the wall has to come down. We're not going to be protected by some media giant that is conservative or even a morally conservative Babylonish church. We are going to be protected by the Almighty God alone, saints. And I'm going to tell you, that might sound frightening, but there's no safer place to be than on the Lord's side. I would rather He take out every protection we've ever had and stand beside us. I'll tell you what we would learn from that. We will learn to trust in Jesus, and we will learn to trust in God. Like the song, Through It All. Through all of what? Well, you're going to have to go through some things where nobody is helping you, where you're wondering, if I'm going to have to face this alone. I don't mean all by yourself. You've got a family here. Thank God for the family of God. But I mean, you're standing there thinking the whole world is against us. But God's not. And God's bigger than the whole world. And if I had to choose between the whole world and God, well, you know what I'm going to choose, don't you? We're in a day very close to the day when major moves have happened in history. This is a major move in history. It could take years to come about. It could take months. But we are facing a major shift in history. I mean as major as the Reformation movement. 
When those men stood up like Martin Luther and said, if the whole world be against me, then I'm against the world. Or said, if you're going to ask me to choose between my conscience and my life, I'll choose my conscience. There was a major shift going on. God was calling his people up to a different level. He was bringing them out of that Babylonian system in that day. He was making a major religious move forward. He did that in a major way in the Reformation. And then phases of that that occurred after that, like the Holiness Movement, the Pentecostal Movement, that followed in the wings of the Holiness Movement. We are moving on. The only thing left, saints, the only thing left is the restoration of the church. We went from a church that fell away to the Reformation, which was the coming out of that church that fell away. But it wasn't restoration. It was just a beginning of the coming out. And that's been now 500 years. It was 1513, October 31st, wasn't it, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Church Castle door. And it went on almost 200 years before that, if you go back to Wycliffe and others. But for the last almost 700 years, this has been moving in this direction. And it started to pick up pace in the late 1700s and the 1800s with the Wesleys and others and the beginning of the holiness movement. It's almost like a wave that is coming. And even though it looks like the great stormy sea of mankind is going to swallow us up, you know, it looks like the waves are just going to crash down over us and cover us. And that scripture always comes to my mind, that psalm where he says, the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. Talking about the waves crashing and the seas roaring and the fear that creates. But the Lord on high is mightier than noise of many waters, yea, and the roaring of the sea. We're in the middle of the crashing of a lot of waters. There is a lot of pressure that's going to be coming against the church. A lot of pressure, just like that water I talked about I felt when I was drowning. I was drowning. That water I felt coming against me. That's what's coming against God's people in the days that are coming. But the Lord on high is mightier than the sound or the pressure or the strength of any amount of waters. And as we're facing that, I said it's coming in waves. There's another wave. It's an invisible wave. It's not like the crashing of the sea. There's something else moving that this world does not even know is happening. There's a wave moving, and that ripple started with the Reformation. And that ripple moved on through the Reformation, and it moved into the Holiness Movement, the 17 and the 1800s. In the late 1800s, on into the 1900s, it moved on to the Pentecostal Movement. On the other side of that movement, there's not another movement. Once the Holy Spirit is restored, do you understand the Holy Spirit is typified by water and rain and fountains and such things? Once the water starts falling out of heaven again, which it started with the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, the latter rain has begun. And once the latter rain has begun, the only thing left is the restoration of the church when that rain reaches its full crashing potential. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to drown out the noise of all the waters of the sea when the voice of the Lord starts sounding again and breaks the cedars and moves the waters and everything else that the voice of the Lord does. So we are living in as troublous times as we have probably ever lived in right now, morally speaking. We're living in probably the most troublous times this nation has ever been in. But that just means we're getting closer to the Lord's moving in a mighty way. That's all that it means. The Lord has never lost control. He has never lost control. He has always maintained his absolute sovereignty over his creation. He allows a lot of things to go on under the canopy of that sovereignty. We've all experienced some of them. And you cannot blame God for tragedies and things that happen that God may not have planned or directed to happen because of the curse and other things that occur. But I'm going to tell you, God is still in control. And in the end result, is the greatest exercise of his control when he moves us past the curse. And there's no more curse, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying. Wipes away every tear from our eyes. 
When he wipes those tears away, by the way, that's the last time there'll ever be a tear in your eye. When God wipes away every tear, there'll never be a tear in your eye again. Praise his holy name, saints. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.